Hi everyone, welcome to the God Attachment Healing Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Landa. This podcast is dedicated to helping Christians who want to understand why they relate to God, themselves, and the church in the way that they do. I explore how our early childhood experiences with our parents influence how we relate. I discuss how we can find healing from the pain, confusion, doubt, fear, and anger experienced in these relationships. If you're interested in learning more about your attachment style and how to heal from the pains and struggles you've experienced, then this podcast is for you. Welcome to the show. I'm happy you're here. Um, one time I had it with, uh, I had a similar conversation with another um, mentor of mine and, you know, it was really kind of comparing our uh, experiences in fatherhood to how is that different than the relationship with Jesus and God or can we replicate that in some way, shape or form? And uh, obviously we see a much different type of uh, relationship, but yeah, what's our role in that? Um, I have mostly, what does it mean for us as Christians to see God as our father um, and link that everything to what we can learn from observing that relationship between Jesus and God the Father. So throughout Jesus' ministry, him praying to God the Father, expecting certain things, and obviously before going to the cross, how even in that moment of desperation, asking for relief and not receiving it. And how maybe people may see that as, well, that wasn't that doesn't seem like a very fatherly move, right? And letting your children suffer. And it seems like in today's culture, at least, that we very much want to protect our kids from suffering. And I don't know if you've experienced that already as a father, but I definitely experienced it with my firstborn. I was much more on edge when he was adventuring and doing things around the house and outside that I had to catch myself. Sam, it's okay. You've been there. You were a kid too. He's exploring. He's doing his thing. There's a balance of caution with a balance of guidance and protection, right? So essentially, we'll get in into all of that and what that means in, in this relationship. But um, just for those of you who are just tuning in to the podcast, it's got attachment healing. And I have my good friend, Dr. Josh Waldman, who I've known for years and we've worked together and he's just been a really, really cool friend, smart guy, one of the smartest guys I know. That's why I surround myself with him. So Josh, welcome to the show, buddy. I appreciate having you on. Always a pleasure, Sam. Good to be with you and good to... Uh, have this conversation excited to, to be a part of this yeah yeah absolutely so yeah so what we're going to talk about today is uh, the relationship between Jesus and God the Father and what can we as Christians learn from that relationship there's so much to unpack um, I know we can go in many different directions um, anytime Josh and I have a conversation I mean we just go where the conversation leads us and it's always good so we'll see how how that works out for us here <laughs> so josh is a father of one soon to be two coming up in april and um, well sam you know we are pro-life in our family so i'm a father of two already that's true that's <laughs> true good point, good point. <laughs> absolutely i'm gonna absolutely. be that guy <laughs> we want to yeah we want to clarify that for sure thank you for that that's good stuff so now a father of two and so josh just from a human, uh, a male father experience, just what are some just some lessons that you've learned being a dad, you know, or daddy or dada, whatever your son calls you? Oh, goodness. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I learn a new lesson every day and they all have to do with uh, learning to have patience and <laughs> and have more to do with exposing my own deficiencies mm. uh, than anything else. But, you know, a piece of advice I got when I first got married that has run true throughout the years and even into fatherhood has been once you get married, the, the nature of the relationship is such that you you learn first and foremost how selfish you are and, and how you need to learn to be more um, selfless and, and, and giving um, and generous and so forth. And, and my wife would say that uh, I still have a long ways to go on that front, but <laughs> almost as you jump into fatherhood, that whole motif, that whole theme of, of needing to be selfless and needing to take care of another and to serve someone else, um, that motif intensifies. And so yeah. as soon as you get, get the marriage, you feel like the marriage is going well and going strong. You feel like, okay, I've learned a whole lot about me and my need to, uh, you know, serve another person. 
uh, once you start to have kids, you realize, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. uh, I need to I need to sacrifice self even more uh, in service of someone else. And so, you know, I think I think a lot of the things that I have learned, uh, I've only been a father here for the last three years. Um, a lot of the things that I have learned has been things that. I probably would have told you that I understood these concepts prior to being a father, but I did not understand them with experientially uh, in the same way that I understand them now. And that's that's been a good um, sanctifying process uh, from start to finish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, when you mentioned about that sacrifice going to a different level with a child, I think one of the things that shoots out at me from that is that in in marriage we both give to each other right so the love builds on the giving of each other and it it encourages us it it energizes us to give more but what's interesting with children is that they can't give you back right Mm. they don't give us back anything for the first you know number of years and then as they turn two and three and four now they're able to say hey dad i love you and they're they come and give us these random hugs and they do all these things that in that sense that's them giving back to us but you know to your point earlier what we were talking about like infancy and baby stage like they're not giving mm-hmm. and you still love them right you we love because we give to them and it's such a i think that was one of the most important lessons that i learned is that when you love someone you give and true love i guess we could talk about you know the agape love is giving without that expectation in return and I wonder if there's if there's any um, connection to, you know, how much God loves us. So when we pray to God, our Father, mm-hmm. right? It's kind of that idea, like, what can we give to God that is going to pay back His love for us, you know? <laughs> and and it's it's one of those things that we just we can't, right? Mm-hmm. So I wonder what what are some some uh, insights I guess from that from the idea that. What God calls for us to do is to cure across daily and to follow Him, right? And even that, I feel, is not enough for what He's done for us. That's right. I, all great points, Sam. I think um, there's a little bit to this here. I think certainly yeah. God puts together the family as an institution to help us understand uh, the relationship between us and Him in a greater way. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, very much so, these sort of built-in lessons, life lessons, impulses, and things that we have um, is intended for us to try to understand our relationship with Him better. But there, there's even a limitation there, and and you really mm-hmm. tapped into that here. Um, you know, as a as a dad to Jack and Barry, my my son's names. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I have certain expectations. You know, and, and dare I even say, uh, conditions. Um, mm-hmm that I expect as part of this relationship. Um, but I'm going to love within those, within those relationships, I'm going to love very imperfectly as their father. Mm. Um, you know, and so that imperfection, even with those conditions attached, that imperfection is going to, is going to keep them, you know, it's going to keep us from thinking of the relationship between human father and human son with the, is an exact representation of what we have with our heavenly father and so he loves us perfectly um, and he loves us without um, despite, should I say despite because we're a part of his family because we're adopted sons in Christ mm-hmm. because of what Jesus has done um, he loves us no matter what we do and so it's because of Christ and it's not based on anything that we've done that had you know given us that status. It was what Jesus had done for us on our behalf, and that being the case, there's nothing that we can undo to take that away. And so, at least in my the- theology, anyway, that unconditional love um, to be a part of God's family really distinguishes it from what we experience as part of the earthly family. And that's that's part of the beauty here, right? In all of the ways mm-hmm. I fail as an earthly father, uh, my heavenly Father does not fail, and praise God that He doesn't. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. And I think even now, as fathers, 
we turn to him even more because we realize that that imperfection. You know, you, I mean, you mentioned patience. Mm-hmm. I mean, patience. I think uh, for most parents, especially in those early years, when they're developing their minds and they're they're learning about their little world and everything, it's hard. And this is just toddler stage, right? We I, haven't even touched preteen and teen years. <laughs> you know, I used to work at a at a, a Christian school, and we had K to twelve. And man, those those stages, like you see the difference. And every parent faced a different challenge. And, uh, yeah, so it's not only, you know, to your point about how God loves us perfectly, it's also he loves us perfectly in each of these different stages of life. When we're close to him, when we're far from him, when we're angry at him, when we're disappointed, whatever the case is, even throughout all of that, we push him away or we kind of have this wall up, and he still loves us. And as a parent... Gosh, I mean, I can imagine through, you know, through our earthly feelings and minds and bodies that if my son pushes me away, it's going to hurt and may even make me respond with, well, I'm going to pull away, you know, and we're so thankful. I know that God doesn't treat us that way. And that's a pretty common misconception, right, is that as God's children, when we do something wrong, that we feel like we can't come to God, the Mm -hmm. Father. But the Bible teaches something different. That's right. Yeah, you know, that's that's something I think that if, if I had to um, say that the Lord is continually working in my life, it's to understand the nature of grace that comes from our Heavenly Father. That, that because grace is in place, you know, I, I, can't, I can't merit any more grace from God. There's nothing mm-hmm. I can do to get into more favor with Him. You know, because Jesus did the work. It was it was grace that allowed me to be a part of His family to begin with, and because Jesus did the work, that means when I find myself in the throes of the shame of sin, um, and I you know sometimes that shame of sin, at least I'm sure I'm sure everyone can maybe relate with relate to this, that the very thing that um, that you need to do, and that is to come to the Father and receive His love is the very thing that we feel like we can't do because of that shame and that sense of guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the nature of grace is such that he welcomes our return always and forever, right? We we can always come back to him, and that's that's grace mm-hmm. uh, and on a level that it's just it's very hard to put into practice because of where we find ourselves in the struggle for sin. But um, I will say, as a, as a earthly father, I understand that better than I have in a long time because I can imagine, you know, my son. In fact, my son does does disobey at times, and I find myself, nope, uh, that doesn't that doesn't change how much I love him. And that's a, a very imperfect representation of how God loves us as His sons. Yeah, yeah. No, and you reminded me of something too, there, Josh. With um, I don't know if you agree experienced this already with Jack, but, um, you know, when you're um, getting them in trouble for something or calling their attention to something, if it happens often enough, um, they start to become fearful to the point where they don't want to share what they did was wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, it was a Saturday morning and I was asleep. The boys woke up, they go downstairs and we had some, I think I had like some candy on the counter. And I come down, and I'm like, hey, do you guys eat breakfast already? They're like, no. And I see the wrappers. Mm. I'm like, wait a minute. Who got candy? <laughs> no one. No. It was Bo. It was Beck. It was And they're pointing the finger at each other. And I'm like, guys, why don't you just tell me the truth? Just tell me who, who got the candy? It's like, um, no one. And they kept on lying. And I was thinking, <laughs> what am I doing here that, that makes them fear telling me the truth? Because they had already been doing this for a couple of weeks. And uh, so I had to change the approach. I'm like, I wonder if with the punishment, they know they're going to get punished, but let me change it up a little bit. Let me change it to where I say, if you just tell me the truth, then I'll um, I'll have you guys do something else. Maybe you have to go do a chore or something else. That's not a, mm-hmm. you know, a spanking or whatever the case is. And I said, okay, daddy, it was me. I'm sorry. <laughs> so now I did that for a couple of weeks. And now if I ask, different tone, different approach. They'll say, I'm sorry, daddy, it was me. And they'll tell me about it. And I was just thinking about it, Mike, that there's so much fear of punishment from us. And, you know, I don't know if you experienced this. I grew up Baptist. I think you grew up Baptist too, right? I did, yeah. So kind of there was that kind of that approach 
of fear-based where if I mess up, I can't come to God or I don't want to want to tell him the truth, even though he knows it, right? And it wasn't until I came here to Liberty where I started interacting with other students and they took a much more grace approach with that, which at first I didn't like. I felt like there was being light on sin. But as I started to understand it more and more, I was like, no, it's not being light on sin. It's looking at my sin from the from the perspective of Christ and what he's done for that sin. And that just changed my whole perspective on on everything. And we see this, right, in the, in the relationship that God has with us. And with the Israelites, I mean, we go Old Testament, same thing, this patience, this forgiveness, this restoration. Um, I mean, there's so much that we can talk about, just that aspect of him being a present father in our lives. But talking about his grace, how does that work, you know? How does that work for us who may maybe grew up in a more uh, conservative or strict upbringing for us to understand? Because I think a lot of a lot of our audience um, may feel that if they grew up in a strict upbringing, they don't understand grace as well. Or it's a foreign concept or seen as uh, permissive permissiveness of sin. How do we make sense of it? <clears throat> wow. Uh, big questions there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I think. um I think part of part of what you're we're tapping into. I'm gonna I'm gonna back into that question a little sure. bit. Uh, the way that you changed up, the way that you were enacting discipline with your with your kids there, speaks to a, a great responsibility that we have as fathers. In that, you know, what our kids see in our relationship with them will be the framework in which they understand the relationship yes. with their heavenly father. I mean, like it or not, right? And even with all of our imperfections, and, and we most certainly will have those, yeah. um, that becomes their framework for understanding something like grace or understanding something like law. Mm. And so I think I think you're right in that when we perceive that there's a need to take a step back and maybe approach something like discipline in a different way, that's a, that's a very healthy thing to do because we're trying to proactively you know, sort of steward that responsibility um, in 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 setting up that framework in a healthy way. And I think that's that's a great thing. Um, so all of that speaks to you know, if you grow up in a in a in a in a certain philosophy of discipline or or you know the home and so forth, um, mm-hmm. that's going to create a context for you. That's going to create mm-hmm. a uh, maybe a default response even to the gospel. Let's say. And how you feel about something like grace, or how you feel about something like, you know, the the law being enacted and enforced. You know, you, I can think of, for instance, uh, my wife and I grew up in a, in a somewhat, you know, similar area, but with a little bit different parenting styles. Mm-hmm. And so she she grew up in a in a home life that was a little bit more focused on. Um, you know what you're talking about with grace, and and so it's a little bit more difficult for her at times to understand. Hey, no, we still need to enforce law because mm-hmm. you can't understand grace without understanding law. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, on the flip side of that, it's there are times when I have find myself having to because of my upbringing say, no, I need to focus a little bit more on grace here. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, as far as how do we get to that point of accepting grace as sort of normal and default. I think that comes from a long, um, a, a long period of reflection and understanding on the gospel itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're all called to be preachers of the word, if nothing else, to ourselves. Um, and I think that you know, as we reflect on how the gospel permeates permeates every area of our life, including our parenting, uh, what we come to the conclusion is that God has shown us so much grace, but within the context of our own guilt. And so mm. we've talked about this before that, you know, demonstrating the love of God or the goodness of gospel, the good news, only comes after someone understands how bad their sin is within the context of the law. Mm-hmm. So you can't get someone saved, as the old saying goes, without getting them lost. So I think, mm. you know, from a parenting standpoint, I. I, I do think it's important to create those structures of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and and trying to hold you know our, our kids re- responsible for meeting those expectations. But I think once they understand that and they understand, no, I have in fact 
been an error here. If they're coming to us with a sense of, dare I say the word, repentance, uh, <laughs> you know, if, if they're coming to us, uh, as Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. If they're coming to us with a sense of, I recognize that I've done wrong and I need help and forgiveness, then we should be quick to give that grace because that grace has been given to us. Mm-hmm. So I think I think all of that is sort of like working that out and, and figuring it out how that should look in your context may vary from family family to family and mm-hmm. kid to kid certainly not all kids uh, have mm-hmm. the same needs with this and not all parents have the same needs and backgrounds with this mm-hmm. but I think that's that's where the gospel we have to let the Holy Spirit do the work of, of letting the gospel permeate within our own minds hearts and spirits right yeah. No, it's really good, Josh. Really good. Um, I'm, as I'm thinking about that, you know, you hit on a point that makes a lot of sense, I think, for a lot of people, is that their perspective of God is shaped by their relationship with their parents, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, one of the things that's been always been interesting to see, and, you know, we both touched on this, is that if you grew up in a household or church that has em- emphasized grace, it's hard to understand truth and the law, right? Mm-hmm. And if we grew up on this side with truth and the law, it's hard to understand <laughs> grace and patience and all that stuff, right? So I think for us as parents now, it's like we're going to lean one way. Like I know about myself, <laughs> I lean towards the law. I <laughs> lean towards that direction, right? So mm-hmm. I have to move myself intentionally towards patience and grace. But we're aware of that. And now the tricky part for us, I guess, is when do I apply patience and grace and when do I apply the truth and the law, right? And that's the the interplay that we have with those two very real concepts. And God does this perfectly with us, right? Mm, and I right. think that's one of the things that's been so um, helpful, you know, as you talk about the gospel, that God does this perfectly with us. Even if it doesn't feel like he's being gracious, he's mm. doing it perfectly, you know? So if we can trans- transfer that over to the relationship between Jesus, the Son, and God, the Father, right? What are some characteristics that differentiate that relationship from us as parents to our children or our parents to us, right? What's unique about that relationship? Other meaning, than God, meaning what's, the, what's the differences? Is that what yeah. kind of word you mm-hmm. okay. <clears throat> Oh, goodness. Okay, so we're going to get into some, some heavy-handed theology here. I, I love it. I okay. love it. You know it. <laughs> All right, so, so here's what I'd say. Look. Kind of to, to, to get to that point, we have to open up Pandora's box that is, theologically speaking, the, the Trinity. Okay? Yeah, okay. So, um, here's here's what I would say is that the, the love of God fundamentally exists within the three persons of the Godhead. And, and that is the greatest possible love in all of existence. It is greater mm-hmm. than any other love. Um, it's love that is perfectly self-giving and selfless and self-loving and there's a mutual indwelling and a spiritual intimacy that is beyond anything else that we can even fathom uh, mm-hmm. between the different persons of the Godhead. And that exists into eternity past and into eternity future. It exists apart from any relationship that we have with God in the sense that if we had never been created, uh, God's love would still be perfect, and it would still mm-hmm. be perfect between himself, between the different persons. Mm-hmm. And so it's that kind of love that when Jesus uses all of this language, uh, he uses all of this kind of language. I actually had a couple of passages here. Uh, I don't know that I need to read them verbatim, but uh, you know, if we, if we want to, we certainly can. But, but Jesus makes these kind of claims like, I will never leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And, and uh, on that day, you'll realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Right? Talking about John 14. That when we know Christ, and we have a spiritual communion with him, when the Spirit indwells us, uh, and we are we're united with him, we're actually invited into this loving relationship that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. And so the love of God is distinctly Trinitarian. Uh, it is the love of three persons between themselves for all time and in, and in perfect harmony. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we experience 
all of the good things in life that we talk about, goodness and love and virtue and the perfection of all these things, we experience that by virtue of our connection to Christ that gives us access to the love of the Father. Mm. So, you know, I, I think anything that is good, anything that, you know, anything that is good uh, is comes from God. And what we mean by that is uh, he is the very source of all perf- perfect love. He is the very source of all perfect goodness. Mm-hmm. And we're connected into that by virtue of, of Jesus. And so, yeah, you know, the, 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 the dissimilarities have to do with the fact that we're limited by our, you know, our finitude, the fact that we're just created beings. And you know, yes, we're, we're made in the image of God, but, uh, and, and praise God that we are, that's what gives us the capability to love, right? Is the mm-hmm. very fact that we are made in the image of God. But um, any, you know, all of those things that we experience are not anywhere close to the perfect characteristics that, that exist within God himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in all of the ways that we fail and sin, God has none of those. So, you know, um, I think fundamentally, theologically here, that's a major difference. I mean, um, I guess for your listeners, think about the most loving moment you've ever had. Maybe it was at your wedding day. Maybe it was the the birth of your son, firstborn or something like that, or an engagement, right? What, whatever that looks like, the, the, the most impactful, powerful moment when you felt like you experienced love in its most authentic form, mm-hmm. okay? That pales in comparison to the love that exists in God and that we, in fact, are grafted into in Christ. Mm. So all of the perfections are in him, and we just experience it. Uh, I'm not going to say secondarily, but we experience it by virtue of our connection to him. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's great. Very deep. Yeah, so sorry, sorry to do that, but you know, I'll take <laughs> no, a little no. sweet tea here. That's going to give me the. That's going to give me the theology juice. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's so good. I like that you brought up the. I, I do like that you did bring up the Trinity because there's there's no way it's it's almost impossible to talk about. Uh, the love of God as a father without addressing it, because you do need to make that distinction between Jesus, son and God, the father. And, you know, one of the passages that I wanted to also discuss was Jesus praying on the Mount of Olives, because one of the and I'm sure you've seen this, you know, pastoring and, you know, just ministering to people is that you'll have people who say and again, this goes back to God attachment, which is the attachment style that we develop based on our relationship with our parents. They kind of set the stage for how we're going to relate to God in the future, right? Mm. Interestingly, there's a lot of research that shows that those who grew up without Christian homes, not in Christian homes, when they come to know Christ, they have what's called a a compensation model, which means that whatever they lacked in their childhood, God compensates for all of that lack. So they Mm -hmm. come to know Christ and like, man, Jesus is is the greatest. He's really shown me grace. He's shown me love, which they experience in that transformation, right? Mm. And with those who do grow up in the church, they develop what's called the correspondence model, which is that the way that their parents related to them is what corresponds with how they relate to God, which can be good or bad because Mm -hmm. people who grew up in church, they may have Christian parents or people or parents who go to church, but aren't living in a way that is honoring to God. So they'll carry that to their relationship with God. If it's passive, they're going to be passive in their faith. If it's um, if it's active, then they're going to be active in their faith. So it's really cool interest, and interesting seeing that uh, dynamic there. Mm-hmm. But um, what I wanted to lead to was that that influences how we pray to God. And those who have that model of, well, you know, God's not really active. You know, he may or may not answer my my prayers, but I'm going to do it just to do it and we'll see what happens type of thing. Right. Right. So this could be a perfect example here in uh, Luke 22 verse 39 um, when Jesus, Jesus is about to pray and he tells his disciples, you know, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He withdraws and says, verse 42, father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And I think most of us, when we get to that point, we say, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And that's mm-hmm. it. 
will stop there. Remove this suffering from me. I don't want to go through this. This I deserve this could be another part of that conversation too, right? Because maybe parents made them, you deserve this as your punishment. But that second part is so important is that, but not my will, but yours be done. And if God allows that to happen, which he did allow for Christ to go to the cross because it was necessary, um, we see that as a negative. Like God allowing me to go through this tribulation or this struggle or this, this uh, difficulty is wrong of him. I pray to him day in and day out, every single night, crying on my bed, doing this, doing that, and he's not responding. You know, what is the, how can we help people see God when he either does not answer or we think he doesn't answer, right? It's kind of like the yes, no, wait type of response. I don't know if you want to add more to that, but something we see God not respond in the immediate, maybe it's delayed or maybe it's a no, and we think that he's being a bad father, right? How can we help people get a clear biblical perspective on God's answers to our prayers? Because that, again, can stem a lot from our relationship with our parents. Yeah, man, again, you got some doozy of some questions here. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so you're, you're touching on a lot of stuff there. One would be the problem of evil, certainly. Mm. Um, how do we, why does God allow these sorts of things to happen if he, in fact, is a good father? Um, you know, and I, th I think part of the answer to that, by no means the only answer to that, by the way, but at least part of the answer for that, for believers specifically, would have something to do with it involves our own sanctification. That mm -hmm. in the instance, for instance, of Jesus, you know, willing to go to the cross, he's asking the Father that the cup be passed from him, but yet still submitting to the Father's will. And that, by the way, is what makes him the Messiah, the Messiah. Uh, by by very definition, is one that is submitting perfectly to the Father's will. Mm. Um, so that's an earmark of Jesus's ministry in that sense. And by the way, it's very Trinitarian. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, the idea with that is that there was something greater at work and, and to be accomplished by virtue of Jesus being crucified. And I mean, that, that is truly the greatest suffering. And it's not just the physical suffering. It's the spiritual weight of our sin that was placed upon him. So, you know, if that's the greatest suffering that's ever been, Jesus experienced it greater than any other suffering that we could ever experience. Jesus, Jesus in fact, experienced it. And it was for a greater good. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's part and parcel, I think, of God's love. Yeah. You know, when we talk about the love of the Father, even in the Old Testament, you know, uh, those references in the Old Testament to God being Father, and there are only a few, by the way. There's, I mean, I think mm. there's a couple in Isaiah, there's Deuteronomy and a few others. <laughs> um, like Deuteronomy, for instance, I had it pulled up just, just for fun here. Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2, you are the children of the Lord your God. And then there are instructions about not being involved with pagan practices. Uh out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Meaning that part and parcel of that terminology to be father and to be the children of the father is that the father's love is inherently and definitionally covenantal. Mm. That, it, that it operates within covenant. And so when Jesus is a, a, you know going through the suffering that he is going to go through, um, it's because the Father's will knows what's best for all involved within a covenantal relationship. Mm. So Jesus is going to go and provide the perfect sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world. And, you know, we recognize that our Heavenly Father, uh, because we've been, we've been brought into that relationship with the Father through what Christ accomplished, um, that it's within covenant that His sovereign will is enacted in our lives. And as part of that covenant is that he's going to sanctify us, and with sanctification comes suffering. Um, it has to do with eradicating sin both in our lives personally and the sin in the world, and he's got a greater plan that you know, all things work together for the good of those that love him within the context of that covenantal love that will come to fruition in glory where we'll, you know, sin will be eradicated and, and the goodness of being in relationship with, with God will come to its full realization. But that love is always for the purpose of bringing about the good of his people. Hmm. And so it includes suffering, but yeah. suffering with a purpose. Hmm. 
Uh, and I, I think, you know, as far as like, why doesn't God take that suffering from us instead of allowing us to walk through it? It's because he's working things together in such a way that we're going to be sanctified, that the world is going to be redeemed, that it's going to be restored. And he has all of the, he has the universal knowledge of all of these things and how the, the whole thing is going to come together that we don't have. And, you know, uh, sometimes that means that we're going to be the ones uh, that suffer. So mm. um, that that's easier. That's very easy to say. Right, right. Right. And I think about people that may be listening to the podcast and like, man, I'm dealing with cancer mm-hmm. and it's hard and it's painful. And my family have to has to suffer. And all of those things are true. And, um, you know, and it is hard. Uh, but in those moments, really, the thing that gets you through it is the knowledge that the Lord is walking with you through it, that there's something much greater to come. And that despite the suffering, the Lord is going to going to use it in a way to advance His kingdom. And so I think mm-hmm. the uh, the more biblical approach to the problem of of suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll say it this way: John Piper had a we talked talking about cancer. He had a book that came out. Uh, oh, I was a number of years ago. It's always just kind of stuck with me. The title of it was "Don't Waste Your Cancer." Mm-hmm. And and the. The, the thrust of it was that even cancer, even even great disease, um, is an opportunity to reach people and to do things that, that have kingdom impact in ways that you wouldn't have had otherwise. So, mm-hmm. it get, you know, having the perspective of, hey, like, suffering, disease, illness, pain, um, you can do a whole lot in that context and reach a whole lot of people in more powerful and transformative ways than maybe you would have otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I, I think uh, if we have that perspective going into it, um, that ends up being something much closer to, to Jesus's perspective going to the cross. Yeah. Yeah. It's powerful, man. It's powerful. And you know, what's interesting is that we, I mean, scripture's full of that, right? Mm-hmm. It's full of this time of suffering and waiting and the people and prophets or you know the psalmist asking where are you god right mm-hmm. and just that right. that waiting period so we have multiple examples of it but i guess that's part of sin nature is that to remove ourselves of pain even if it brings good mm-hmm. right and it's very easy you know i'm sure you know to your point about everyone who's listening because i'm sure they may be going through something right now where it's painful <clears throat> and the natural tendency for us is to want it to be taken away, want it to be removed. And as we focus on that, it's like grabbing a magnifying glass and saying, I want this to go away, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as we get closer to it. And maybe move the magnifying glass over to God's purposes or what God is doing or all these examples that we see in Scripture. You know, one of the things that came up uh, as a question for me, Josh, was how the pursuit, as, as a parent, my job and our job is not really, or is not, to make our children happy, mm. you know? And that's, that's a, I think that's a good point or an interesting point because that wasn't what God did with the Israelites. It wasn't what he did with the prophets. It wasn't that what he did with Jesus, right? Or with Paul. And, you know, we can go down the list. <clears throat> I don't think any of them got to a point where they said, man, I'm just happy. Mm-hmm. I'm just, it's just a happy life. Joyful, sure. we read about joy. But I think that's important because I think oftentimes we confuse that, that if we're not happy, then God is not at work. You know? All right, let me ask you a question, Sam. Yeah. So you said our job as parents is not to make our kids happy. What is our jobs as parents? What's the, what's the 30,000 point view? Like, what, what do you think is, if you could summarize it, What's your goal as a parent? Yeah, well, <clears throat> you know, when I think about it, I know that my role, that God based me in the role as a father to my children to model for them what it's like to depend on Christ during difficult times. If I can summarize it in that, because there will be difficulty, right? In this world, you will have tribulation, but you good cheer, I've overcome the world. That aspect of, I need to model that for my children when when I go through difficulties and if I can model that for them when they go through difficulties that they know who to turn to if they turn to me great I'm going to point them towards Mm -hmm. Jesus right and if I can do that 
as they get older, if they see me model it and they know the principle of it, that they do that as well. And if they're doing that, it's also going to make them push outward service, right? Not internal, like me, 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 but mm-hmm. serve others, right? That's what Jesus did, serving others. So my hope is that they develop in them <clears throat> through modeling, through teaching, through surrounding them with community is that they love God and love others. You know, that that's essentially the the principle for all of us. And to go and make disciples, right, to preach the gospel, to stand for truth. I want my children, my boys to stand for truth. I want them to show grace, mm-hmm. right? Um, so those are things I think as parents, we want to develop certain things in our children. So we aim, our efforts are aimed towards that. Right. And I hope, you know, to your part about the imperfection, is that I, that's what I want to do. How am I doing? I won't know till maybe 18, 20 years from now, you know, right. when you yeah. see the fruits of your labor. But um, yeah, at my goal, it's we feel good seeing our kids happy. I feel good. When they're happy, I feel good. But I know that everything that makes them happy is not going to be good for them, you know. Right. Um, <clears throat> so that's that's where I'm coming at it from. How about you? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think we're called to make disciples. Yeah, and that's true in parenting, just just as it's true in our relationship with our spouse, just as it's true mm-hmm. in the relationship with our church. Uh, that's that's the whole goal here is to make disciples, mm-hmm. and um, you know, to a certain extent, I can't control whether only the Spirit can draw my son to God to Himself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it requires an act of God to open His eyes spiritually and His ears spiritually i recognize that it is god himself that does the choosing in that in that sense but you know i have been called by virtue of being a parent to do everything in my power to try to help that happen to try to put things in place so that he hears the gospel from me and from his mother and from everyone else in his life and uh, certainly making disciples is not the same thing as making comfortable or making happy mm-hmm. making happy um, you know, hopefully there is happiness. I, you know, I'm not yeah. I'm not detracting from that, mm-hmm. but that's just not the same goal as making disciples. Um, and so that being like the, the antidote to hold, not well, not the antidote, the um, antithesis antithesis to holiness, mm-hmm. right? The pursuit mm-hmm. of happiness destroys the pursuit of holiness. Sure. Right? Because if I'm seeking to be happy, then I'm just going to look for that next hit. Mm-hmm. Holiness. As we see in scripture, I don't see those. It's just one person, one mission, one cross that we're, you know, where the Lord calls to carry our cross daily. That's the mission. And if you're looking for happy, you need to look for something outside of that because that could get boring. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's where people start to phase out. Well, you know, this is not exciting for me anymore. I don't want this anymore. It doesn't make me happy. Whether it be that, relationship with God, marriage, children, uh, pursuits of something else, it doesn't make me happy anymore. So we choose something else. But I actually don't know, you know, come to think of it. Because, we, you know, you and I have been talking about the happiness sort of uh, the happiness pursuit thing for a long time. Off camera out of the podcast here. But hmm. I don't even know what that means anymore. I'm pretty convinced that yeah, happiness true. is such that's a moving true. target. And I don't even, how would you even know if you were happy? Is it a, hmm. is it a biochemical reaction in your brain that's giving you a high? You know, I, I just... I don't even know what that means that's a good exactly. Point. No, you're yeah. right. That's a good point. Everything is being changed. The definite, and yeah. I think that's what it is. Is that you know, for um, you know, if we look at the world, you know, they could say that they're happy and you know, doing drugs, mm-hmm. or you know, having all these copious amounts of, of sex or drinking or whatever the case is. Right? That yeah. makes them happy, but that's temporary satisfaction. Well, and, you know, <clears throat> you know, it, those are certainly great examples, but. Um, probably just as good examples would be the 35 year old that has fell into their dream job and now they're happy or the 45 year old that's built their dream house or uh you know uh hey i'm i'm a i'm a family member and i've now finally gotten my three kids Mm -hmm. and a dog and i'm very happy with my life you know like it doesn't look the same (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) that's true uh, and and th- all of those things, minus the drugs and the the illicit fornication and whatnot, <laughs> all of those things could be very good things. But uh, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that that's the same goal as being a mm-hmm. disciple. 
because mm -hmm. a disciple means that your priorities are are kingdom centered. And uh, praise God if he if he pr pr provides some of those other things. But um, if if uh, I think about, for instance, there's a missionary from the writings of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, missionary's name was David Brainerd. If anybody has any interest in looking up David mm -hmm. Brainerd, I think you'd be fascinated. Yeah. David Brainerd spent his his um, entire ministry uh, with the the Native American tribes in post-colonial America. Um, he was so a far doctor, as, no? I'm not sure if he was a doctor. I'm, I'm actually not sure. I, I hadn't. I don't know if I, I've seen that particular detail. But um, so far as we know, he, he had very very few converts, and in fact, spent quite a bit of at least of the last days of his life and in, in great sickness and illness. Um, he spent some time with it with uh, Jonathan Edwards, um, and Edwards was so impressed with him that he wrote his sort of uh, biography. But um, that's a man who saw no real fruit from his ministry, at least not in his own time. That's a man who had great physical pain and suffering. That's a man who, you know, got no accolades during his life from anyone, really, except for mm -hmm. maybe Jonathan. Uh, but, you know, the Lord ultimately used his story to encourage missionaries the world over for the last few hundred years. Mm. But still, but my point is he was perfectly he was perfectly content in the will of God. And that's part of his testimony is he yes, mm. he had moment, plenty, plenty of moments where he felt discouraged. But but, you know, that that was a man who found joy ultimately in the purposes that God had for him, even when everything else was going wrong. And so that looks very different than an American dream approach to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, I know we both probably see this in, in the church, in modern church today, where the emphasis is that, right? The emphasis mm -hmm. is happiness over holiness. And I remember reading about an interview about a counselor who's, who a Christian guy came to him and said, hey, um, you know, I've been depressed. I've been feeling anxious, and I just, I just want to be happy. <clears throat> he tells yeah. the counselor, and he's a Christian counselor. <laughs> and he says, "Okay, so is that is that your goal? Is that your reason for coming to counseling?" And he says, "Yeah, I just want to be happy again. I want to know what it feels <laughs> like again. All the everything around me is crumbling. I just want to be happy." He says, "Okay. Well, why don't you um, go on a cruise, five seven day cruise, um, <laughs> to make sure you take a lot of money. You know, you're gonna buy a lot of drinks." Uh, meet a lot of women. Um, you're gonna have fun. Go out there, enjoy that cruise, and when you come back, try to plan another trip. And he keeps on going on this rant about what he should do for trips and and all this stuff. And the uh, the client looks at him. He says, "Wait, aren't you a Christian counselor?" <laughs> yeah. And he's like, "Then why are you telling me to plan this this trip? And it doesn't even <laughs> sound like it's biblical." He says, right. "Well, you said you wanted to be happy." Mm -hmm. And he says, okay. So happiness is seeking those things that make you feel good temporarily. Mm -hmm. But if you were to say, I want to be holy, then that's a different response. you know. Sure. And God calls us to holiness. And here's what it looks like. Carrying our cross daily and following him. And what does that look like? And then they go into the details of that. But it taught me an important lesson about that idea of happiness is that I think when we are not happy, we think that something is wrong in our relationship with God. Same way children do with their parents, right? Teenagers, they're not happy, so they're angry at their parents. <clears throat> My parents don't love me. They hate me, right? And we kind of carry that on in our relationship with God is if I'm not happy, God is not doing what he's supposed to be doing as a parent. Sure. You know, and reconciling those two ideas is hard because we don't have a, a good understanding of what you mentioned, God working everything else in the background. Sure, you know? yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, um, <laughs> now that's not to say... That's not to say that we don't find contentedness in being in Christ, that we don't have right, right. a grounding that, that allows us to, to feel. I mean, really, it's freeing. It's freeing to know that I'm in Jesus, my eternity is secured. I'm, I'm, my efforts are, are being used towards something of eternal value, right? Mm -hmm. and, and despite, you know, you know, current situation, whatever that looks like, I'm doing things that will ultimately mean something when it's all said and done. That, that's, that's a true freedom. Yeah. Uh, and we're not taking away from that. We're not subtracting from that by saying that that's not happy, you know, that there aren't even happy elements with that and feeling and feelings of victory, I guess we could say. Uh, but again, that's just, it's a difference of goal. Um, 
and you know what? Maybe maybe to a certain degree, and also just to tie all this back together, it's a it's a difference of the recognition of self identity. Hmm. Um, this this kind of has been some conversation around the school of divinity this week. Um, Chad Thornhill and others have have been talking about this this idea that the love of God the the love of God the Father for us grounds our identity in Him. That is in a way that is extremely countercultural right now. So, um, you know, if someone were to say, "Who am I?" Um, a Christian should say, "I am a child of God. That is who I am fundamentally, and my my identity of myself. That you know, all of the good things in my life stem from my recognition that He loves me, that I'm in Jesus, that I'm connected to the Trinitarian love of the Godhead, and so forth." Like all of the sanctification that goes on in my life, all of these things are are pointed towards something greater. But the world's sort of um, counter to that and uh, perversion of that, I don't know if you've heard the term here recently, expressive individualism. Does that mean anything to you? Mm-hmm. It's, this, uh, it, it's the academic nomenclature to refer to this concept in the culture that just be yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, anything yeah. that is your self-identity is rooted in something internal to you and you can't have anything that's being imposed on you mm-hmm. because that wouldn't allow you to express your true authentic self that comes from the inside. Right. Right. And so your self identity is ultimately rooted in something that is subjective and it's a moving target. Mm-hmm. Um, something that makes you happy from the inside. Right. And the problem with, and we see that everywhere. Culture is, is, is just full of examples of this kind of thing. The problem with that is that, again, it is a moving target. It may be Mm -hmm. different from day to day. There's nothing rooted in eternity on it. Um, It doesn't allow any other system to make us conform to that system. And it's uh, vacuous when it's all said and done because it's so subjective. However, my identity and the love of my father tells me that that is something that's going to be you know, I'm going to be connected in that identity into eternity future. Um, mm. It will never change because God's love doesn't change. And mm. who he says I am in him doesn't change uh, because of his grace. And and that, you know, does absolutely conform me into the image of his son. Mm. And, you know, there it, you know it, it ensures, of course, that what's inside of me, all that is good... Yeah, you know, that's 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 great. That's I'm made in the image of God, um, but anything that's inside of me that's sinful is going to be eradicated through sanctification. And ultimately, when it's all said and done, I'm going to experience the greatest the greatest version of myself because of the love of God that's been imparted to me. And so, my identity mm-hmm. itself is rooted in that love and identity uh, under the Father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, good stuff, good stuff. Um, and I, yeah, and you know, I like that you. I like that we have this friendship where if I say something, you're going to add something to expand on what I mentioned. <laughs> I don't want my audience to think that everything is this suffering. I got to bear through this type of mm-hmm. life, right? Right. Um, I think my point across me mentioning that is sometimes as we're going through the suffering, we start to think of God as. Right. <clears throat> You know, Lord, you're not here, and we give up or we pull away, and that so, uh, oftentimes makes us miss the blessing of seeing His His love and His care and His forgiveness at the end of that. Right. So that that's essentially if we keep persisting through that, you experience a different joy in the Lord because you see Him again. And if He does it multiple times, now you just rest in the fact that He's always been consistent. Right, and that again we mm-hmm. see in scripture all of the time. So that's always a uh, good to <clears throat> to refer back to. Yeah, but, right. yeah. Well, great stuff here, Josh. I mean, um, last final thoughts just on anything that we've talked, anything that you found um, intriguing, or something that uh, maybe a question that came up for you, or a question that you think the audience might have about this relationship between Jesus and God the Father about their own Christian life. Is there anything to close up here? Boy, um, you're, you're the questioner, my friend. In this podcast, <laughs> you ask the questions. Uh, yeah, yeah 
I don't I don't know that I really have anything to add here. I think um, I think what we well maybe this maybe this when Jesus hits the scene there uh, in the New Testament. One thing to keep in mind is that his use of referring to God as Father hmm. is is not commonplace at all. It was strange. Hmm. The Jew, the Jewish leaders would not have been accustomed to this at all. Really? Yeah, it, it was very it was very unique. Now, yeah, you get references in the Old Testament to Israel talking or referring to God as Father, but that's the whole nation as a part of the covenantal relationship. But when Jesus is walking around preaching and talking about mm. his father, I mean, that that is almost, that's provocative even. Mm. Uh, and, you know, what's, what's interesting there is he invites us and, in, in fact, instructs us to, in his, in his sort of, uh, in his way, to refer to God as our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, mm. like he, you know, and so forth in, in the Lord's Prayer. So he's modeling for us a new way to think of God um, as Father, as part of this, as part of God's family, as, as sons. And even if you pay attention, I, I had written down this passage, uh, John 20. Jesus in, actually changes after the resurrection. He changes his reference to the disciples and actually refers to them as brothers. Mm. And mm-hmm. recognizing that they are in him and he is in the Father, we are all, in a certain sense, theologically speaking, a part of the family of God. Mm-hmm. And now, keep that in mind, the family of God, everyone says, oh, everyone's a child of God. And you hear this in pop culture all the time. That's not true at all, actually. That is that is a, a, a moniker that is used expressly of those who've been adopted sons and daughters into the family of God because of Christ, mm-hmm. and it's so it's dangerous to believe that it is. You think that you're part of the family when you're not, and that's right. an important distinction, right? So, calling God Father is something that is thoroughly Christian. I mean, mm-hmm. this is not something that the Jews were in the habit of doing. This is something that Jesus instructs us to do because of the covenant that He establishes. Uh, between us and God in, uh, at the cross and so forth, so the new covenant. Mm-hmm. So that that is truly an honor, uh, and there's more to that. I hope I hope that the audience will will kind of, especially from our conversation here, will really yeah. allow that to kind of seep in a little bit. There's so much to that. We we sort of take it for granted. We 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 cry and say, "Oh yeah, our heavenly Father." Well, well, calling God Father is the result of the covenantal love of God through the Son, that was a really, truly a unique thing uh, mm-hmm. that Jesus allowed us to be a part of. That's great. Awesome. I'm glad you, I'm glad you addressed that. That was, that was good. Really good. Yes, sir. Uh, well, Josh, I have one more question for you. Okay. This is more of a fun one. Yeah, let's do it. So who do you like from the Old Testament? What, what's, who in the Old Testament uh, impressed you? Who in the Old Testament do you <laughs> admire their faith? Who's that person? And I'll, I'll start with mine as we're talking about fatherhood, right? Uh, Abraham, mm-hmm. right? Abraham gets told to give up his um, son, mm-hmm. right? The son who's supposed to bring forth the promise. And, you know, obviously we don't know what he was experiencing, but we can imagine, I guess, as fathers. But it says that the next day he woke up and they went up the mountain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this true obedience and submission to the will of God the Father, again, kind of going back to Jesus' submission to God the Father in the uh, on the Mount of Olives, um, man, I can't even imagine myself having that type of faith with my firstborn so with any of my sons, really, right? right? With any of my sons, but knowing how I felt when I remember uh, carrying Bo for the first time, and then letting him grow, and I think, and you can verify this, and Abraham was older, right? right. He wasn't right. just a baby or a kid; he was older. Mm-hmm. And then for him to go through with that, and knowing what was going to happen, you know, um, so that that's always been kind of like one of those markers for me. I love Moses too, but mm-hmm. Abraham, as we're talking about fatherhood, kind of just stood out there. Yeah, the, the faith that, you know, obviously the, the baby there was a miracle baby. God, you know, he had prayed for so long and God finally provided. And, you know, this idea that 
God had established a covenant that he would not allow this sort of you know, child sacrifice like the pagans. That mm. wasn't going to be a part of the covenant with Abraham. Mm. And so Abraham has to trust that even though he's getting these instructions from God, that God is not going to go back on his word or his covenant. Mm. So, you know, again, the covenantal love character of, of the love of God comes into play even in Abraham's faith. But but for me, you know, I think uh, I love Abraham, of course, but one of the guys that I've always just admired is Isaiah. Mm. I, Isaiah, as far as we know, he was a prophet that gets his calling there in Isaiah 6 um, where, you know, woe to me, I'm an unclean man from an unclean people. I have unclean lips and they... The uh, angel brings the, the the brick of fire, touches his lips to anoint him for the task at hand. But the rest of that chapter, he is told that the people in Israel are not going to listen to what he has to preach. Mm. He already knows on the front end that they're going to ignore him. And yet, he spends the rest of his life doing everything that he can to preach the truth of God to people with, with uh, callous hearts. You know, and, mm-hmm. and trying to in, in obedience to, to what he's been called to do, even to the point, you know, there are <laughs> this is not prescriptive, but uh, <laughs> right. there but but there, you know, there's <laughs> even the story that that Isaiah preached, you know, on this on the uh, the sidewalks naked just to get people's attention. <laughs> uh, I don't I don't uh, recommend that for Sunday morning worship anytime. But uh, but but yeah, just that <laughs> level of commitment to what God had told you to do, n- knowing full well knowing full well that he would not uh, see the fruits of his efforts in his lifetime. Uh, that's that's true. That's true uh, faith. That, that's true obedience. And you talk about suffering. I mean, that man ultimately uh, suffered a, a tragic end in martyrdom. So um, I think he really, I admire him quite a bit there. Yeah. Yeah. And it just reminded me of Noah. You know, mm-hmm. building the ark, never seeing rain, and doing that for what 100, 120 years, something like that. Um, right. Again, just the patience and the waiting on God. You know, we live in we live in a uh, immediate satisfaction world that if we don't get what we want within you know minutes, then mm-hmm. something's off or someone's wrong or something like that. And I think we carry that over to our relationship with God. But man, Josh, as always, man, I love these conversations. I'm sure we could go another couple of hours, but I'll let you go. We have our families, and uh, brother, I love you, man. Thanks for meeting me here, and uh, appreciate you, brother. We'll catch up soon. Thank you, Sam. It was a pleasure. really enjoyed it as well.